If you haven't noticed already, video games are a big deal. Even if you've never played in your life, you've likely heard a song inspired by video games, like this 1979 classic Computer Games by My Sex. Or if you're not a music fan, you've probably watched a movie about video games. Here's a clip from Wreck-It Ralph, a 2013 animated film about a bad guy in an arcade game who feels underappreciated. Look, a steady arcade gig is nothing to sneeze at. I'm very lucky. It's just, I gotta say, it becomes kind of hard to love your job when no one seems to like you for doing it. Over the past 50 years, video games have gone from fun distraction to the leading form of entertainment. In fact, the video game industry is now worth more than Hollywood and the music industry combined. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we explore the wide world of video games, from interactive performances on stage to the golden age of the arcade. But first, in the last few decades, esports have grown into a billion dollar industry. The best professional players rake in millions from competing in games like League of Legends, Overwatch, and Rocket League. Some colleges have even started to build their own esports teams. In 2021, Old Dominion University opened a new state of the art esports arena. With good reason, producer Matt Darrow headed over to campus to check out the arena as students were trying out for ODU's esports teams. For Daniel Tapina, there's nothing quite like winning a tough match on his favorite video game. You fire that final shot on the last guy, and it's just immediate, ah, yes, winner. It's just you, you sit back in your chair, and it's good day's work. Leon Tang says the rush of winning in competitive gaming is just like in traditional sports. I'd say if you talk about in a different sport, like golf. If you hit a hole in one, everyone's watching you. There's like a special feeling that you get. Um, the entire game could be going wrong and you make this one play, you win this one fight, and it, it's really gratifying to see something that you practice work. Daniel and Leon are captains on ODU's eSports team. Daniel plays Apex Legends and Leon plays League of Legends. And don't worry, even their parents don't really know what that means. At first they're like, man, just make sure, just make sure you don't fall behind in school. They have no idea what it is. Like most people would think like, oh, your parents are probably not proud of you. You're just playing games. It's, it's, a, it's a real collegiate sport. It's just like, you know, football. As team captains, each week Daniel and Leon lead their teams through a structured, sometimes grueling set of practices. There's three main aspects of what we do in a week uh, to prepare for our weekly games. The first is just playing on your own in a game mode called Ranked. That's where um, you play by yourself with a team that's completely random. That's where you really practice the game mechanics. You know, you get the skills in-game. Then they do something called scrims, which are basically online scrimmages with other schools once or twice a week. This gives them the opportunity to work on communication, practice as a team. And then finally, we do reviews of the game that we played. So we'll get our coach and we'll sit down in the call and the coach will just run step-by-step step through the entire game starting from, you know, little mistakes uh, that we made, what we could have done differently, things that we did well, and we will just watch all of our games that we played that week and, you know, see where we can improve. When game day finally rolls around, each player prepares differently. For Daniel, his key to success is caffeine. Lots and lots of caffeine. To get warmed up for a game, it takes me at least two hours. I'm weird like that. It takes me two hours, so I would, I would be on before anyone else. And probably half an hour before the game, I chug something with caffeine. Caffeine is what keeps me focused. This year, teams will get to practice and play tournaments at ODU's new state-of-the-art eSports arena. Picture a dark room with rows of computers and blue neon lights glowing overhead. I would say it looks like a scene from iRobot. <laughs> That's Byron Henson. He's a graduate assistant who helps oversee ODU's eSports program. He was a traditional athlete first, playing on Catholic University's football team. But the money some of the top eSports players are earning has got him reevaluating his life path. Honestly, to me, it's like, why didn't I realize this was going to happen when I was younger, when I was playing video games like it was a sport, you know? I was playing video games like it was a sport before it was even a sport. So 
it just makes you wonder. It's like, hmm, what would have happened if I would have, you know, kept playing? Esports has rapidly grown into a booming market, but that's left the industry dealing with some serious growing pains. Recently, there's been lots of talk about the lack of diversity within the ranks of professional gamers. Byron attributes the race gap in esports to the expensive price of gaming computers. I'm African American. Um, you know, being in the esports scene, I do notice that a lot of the competitive esports games, they're all played on PC majority. And in my experience, my friends, my African American friends, and me personally, I didn't get a gaming PC until I got a full time job and worked and then saved up for a gaming PC. If you want a decent gaming PC nowadays, at least at least $1,500. You know, some people don't want to fork that up. So, and that's, that's understandable. It's not just that encouraging diversity is the right thing to do. Byron says it's also in the esports industry's best interest. You know, the more people you have playing the games, first of all, the competition gets better. Second, it becomes more profitable because more eyes are on it. So it's, it's in their best interest, and I think that they are trying, maybe not hard enough, but they're trying, and I think one of the ways is eliminating that monetary barrier. So I think it's good that there has been a push to include esports in high schools, and a lot of times these high schools will invest in, in equipment or at least find ways for their players to play without them having to personally buy the equipment. While esports begins to reckon with its racial disparity, women continue to be underrepresented in the industry. Around 40% of all gamers are female, yet a recent study found that 90% of college esports players in the U.S. are male. So as esports gains a foothold in the mainstream, there's still much work to be done to level the playing field for all gamers. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. When many people think of video games, they picture teenagers parked in front of their computer or mashing buttons on their home console. But video games are being used in surprising new ways on stage. Boris Willis is a performance artist and a professor in the computer game design program at George Mason University. He says video game technology is the future for interactive live performances. Boris, you design games based on the performing arts, but really your first passion was dancing. Tell me how you fell in love with dancing as a young boy in not a very dancey community. Yeah, I remember specifically one event where Mikhail Baryshnikov was on Captain Kangaroo, and he was having an argument with Mr. Moose as to whether or not male dancers were sissies or not. And the way I remember it is that Mr. Moose was giving Burshnikov all of these challenges, which he met with a plum. And Mr. Moose got so angry with Burshnikov uh, at some point that he grabbed the baseball off of the counter, threw it out of the window. <laughs> and Burshnikov looked at the camera, put on his glove, ran out of the door, did this fantastic leap into the sky and caught the ball, which left Mr. Moose's jaw dropped and mine as well. And I was sort of like, oh, look, we have the same expression. And then there was some kind of parade where they sort of marched down the street in front of uh, Captain Kangaroo's house. And um, I remember thinking that is what I'm going to do with my life. The first time you integrated games into a dance performance was a production you called Abandoned Revolution. What was Abandoned Revolution, and how'd you do that? So that was my thesis project in grad school at Ohio State. I wanted to bring together video games or the idea of games and performance. And so the narrative was that the evil artistic director had captured these dancers <laughs> and he was going to take them to his lab and create these animated bots. And these animated bots could do his bidding. He could work them as hard and as long and as much as he wanted to. They didn't get injured. They didn't take any time off. And it was the job of the audience to play these games, to first give them their bodies back to give them their movement back and to give them a path back to the theater so that they could perform for a live audience as sort of that being the, the ultimate goal again. Did the audience love it? Did they get involved and competitive? 
They were, yeah. I, there, there was a sense of competition. There was a sense of like supporting the performers. Each uh, audience member sort of chose a, one of the four performers to sort of be aligned with. And they would sort of cheer for their team uh, as, as team members from the audience came up to play these games against other members of the audience. And so that sort of created this environment of like, you know, I'm cheering for my, for my person who is, uh, you know, trying to sort of overcome what this evil artistic director had sort of imposed on them. You also created an interactive poem called The Owl, the Fish, the Maiden, and He. And you wrote the poem back in the 90s, but then later turned it into a video game. If you have it, would you read a passage from that poem? Yes. He sang a new song that brightened up the day. And on that day, he went away. Now in his travels, he sailed, he sailed. Now in his travels, he sailed right along. To find a young maiden, he'd sworn to love her. He'd sworn to love her so true, so true. He'd love this young maiden and dance in the sun. He'd love this young maiden and they would be one. They met by a river, a beautiful sight. They cuddled while it flowed on into the night. An owl flew by, and this he did say. To swim would be fine on this good night. To swim is divine, tonight, tonight. They jumped into the river, the maiden and he. They jumped into the river and swam with glee. He sang his new song that brightened up the night, and he swam with his maiden in the river with delight. Now the owl was evil and owed the river a favor. The river, it roared, it tossed, it spit. The lovers then wished that they were fish. They changed that very day, so fish they were, and they swam away. The owl didn't know of this miraculous event, his favor was done, his time well spent. Two dead humans meant nothing to him, and the river had fish, and the lovers did love, and in a river, in a river, a song was sung. I love that. And how would you take that poem and turn it into a video game? The idea of turning the poem into a video game came for me... Um, as I was sort of hearing about all of these police killings of unarmed people, unarmed black people specifically, and it felt like an interruption into my life. Like I'm doing whatever, I'm dancing, I'm performing, I'm having an ice cream cone, and then I would hear about these incidents and it would just be like a devastating moment or hearing that there would be no charges brought or no conviction. And... For me, that that poem that I wrote long ago sort of tells about, you know, perhaps a tragic story that has a better ending. But I, I, I wanted to sort of infuse that with this other song that I wrote. Um, that song called Jury Gonna Set You Free became something that I wa- wanted to insert into that poem to sort of break it up, to sort of, to make you have to sort of stop and pay attention to these 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 other feelings that would come up while you're just living your life. And so in that sense, the, that poem became the sort of groundwork um, for living your life. And, and then the interruptions to that were these other moments that would puncture your sense of self, your sense of justice, your sense of just being alive. That song, Jury Gone Set You Free, that's about police can shoot you down because a jury won't convict them? Right. Can you sing us a portion of that song? Yeah. You can shoot me down, down, Lord, because the jury gone set you free. I stand my ground now, the jury gon' set you free. I can't breathe on the ground now, 
the jury gonna set you free. I get arrested and disappear. The jury gonna set you free. I tell you, yes, I have a gun. The jury gonna set you free. I said, no. Then I turn and run. The jury gonna set you free. I didn't have no worries. The jury gonna set you free. Gosh, I love that. How do you use video game technology to help you tell that story as you're singing and as you're dancing? Um, so the, the work itself had many different forms. Um, I had this weird thing happen with my throat and I couldn't really sing or talk or do anything. And there was a moment where I started to feel a little better and I wanted to do something that sort of addressed this issue of police violence. And it came out of me one day when I had felt better and I just turned on my voice memos recorder and I just sang that song. And so that became the basis of it. And then I also, at the same time, was working on The Owl, the Fish, the Maiden, and He as an interactive experience. Uh, So those two things sort of came about the same time. And eventually what happened is that I made... Cinematics, which is this in-game movie using 3D objects and virtual cameras. And so that was the jury going to set you free part. And then I took the um, owl, the fish, that's the short name for it, and I made it so that you click on the words in the correct order and you would hear the words as you clicked on them. And then at some point, I think inspired a bit by Trisha Brown's Water Motor Plus Talking, Trisha Brown, the... um, American modern dance choreographer, postmodern dance choreographer. The idea is that you go back and forth between the two. So on the one hand, you hear the the poem, and on the other hand, you hear the song and you see the cinematic uh, rendered as a, as a scene. It just sounds great. <laughs> I can't imagine where this comes from inside your imagination. I can't imagine how you think of these things, Right. Um, I think, you know, for me, it's just, um, it's all, it's just a natural outgrowth of my two loves of, of, of performance and technology. Um, you know, thinking a lot about how those two things go together. At a certain point, I realized that, you know, working in film, working in dance, working in games, that they all have the same process, the artistic process, but the tools are different. And because the tools are different, as you as you understand that the process kind of happens the same way and the tools are just tools for, for how you sort of make them work, and also that they cross back and forth. I mean, video game engines like the one I use on Real Engine is being used in television and in movies a lot. Um, and so it wasn't for me a big leap to say, you know, I want to put this video, this you know, actual video footage inside of this game engine and then watch it as a as a video Um, we're creating interactive experiences that teach some aspect of whatever anything you can make a game about anything just as you can write a book about anything Boris Willis is a professor in the computer game design program at George Mason University. For more information about his interactive performances, visit BorisWillisMoves.com. Back in the 80s and 90s, arcades were the spot to hang out with friends. Remember going to the mall with a pocket full of quarters to play games like Space Invaders and Street Fighter? But no game captured the heyday of the arcade quite like Pac-Man. Pac-Man's popularity even inspired the 1982 hit song Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia. Fever, 
My next guest is Zach Whalen. He's a digital studies professor at the University of Mary Washington, and he charts the rise and fall of one of America's most nostalgic institutions, the arcade. Zach, in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like every town had some sort of arcade at the local mall. Did you go to any of those arcades as a kid? Do you remember yours? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my mall had a chain or a franchise called Aladdin's Castle, and I went to the Aladdin's Castle at the at the mall, like many of my friends did. And it's an interesting environment because when you go there as a kid, of course, you, you have a limited amount of money to spend. You have whatever you brought with you or your parents gave you. And so it was always fun, but always, uh, to me, a little bit stressful to decide, you know, what do I want to spend my money on and how do I want to spend this time? And uh, some games were fun to watch other people play. Uh, like there was one called Dragon's Lair. Uh, they had that at the mini golf place and it's this fully animated adventure game. And that was fun just to watch. You didn't really have to play it. In fact, it's it's not a very compelling game to play, but it's basically a, a 20 minute cartoon show if someone knows how to play it well. But it costs like $2 to play it if I remember correctly. So I, I don't think I ever played it myself because I thought it was too expensive. So take me back to what even launched arcades. Where'd the idea come from? Well, it, it it is pretty old, and we might think of arcades as like video arcades, places to go play video games. But uh, the the word arcade or the idea of an arcade being a place where you go uh, enjoy things is is much older. And even the idea of coin operated amusement devices goes back into the 19th century. Um, so these might have been things like fortune tellers and um, different automatons, things where you would put a coin in, and then it would be a, like a robot that moves, yeah. or strength testers or love testers. They're they're they tend to operate pretty similarly where um, there's one I love called Spear the Dragon where you have to hold two knobs and then an electrical current is passed through your body and the challenge is to see how long you can hold on. Um, that's from <laughs> the uh, that's from the 1920s, I believe. Um, Nolan Bushnell was the founder of Atari and he saw a video game and he thought this is something we could put into one of these um, amusement kind of contexts. And so he started the company that would uh, eventually become Atari and created their first games. And so most of the games were uh, driving simulators or ball and paddle kind of games, different derivatives of Pong. Culturally, what do you think people thought about arcade collections in their heyday? Were they seen as great places for young people to go and just really blow off steam? I, I think that's certainly what arcade operators wanted people to think, and certainly that was part of part of the idea. Um, I, I think one, one interesting perspective to think about is that these are, uh, like I mentioned earlier, when I would go to the arcade with my, my money, I mean, these are opportunities for kids to be direct consumers for possibly the first time in their life. Instead of asking their mom to buy them something, they are there with their money and, and making a decision as a consumer, uh, what product do they want to put money into? And so I think uh, arcade operators did a lot to make it seem like a fun and exciting and maybe even kind of scary place to go. So you would be, uh, you know, a teenager and given some uh, freedom, you'd be walking around the mall doing whatever else you would do at the mall, socializing. And, uh, you know, malls are bright, clean spaces. Usually there's pleasant music playing and, you know, ficus plants and it's a nice place to be. But then the arcade would be this kind of uh, exciting dark corner of the mall that would, uh, it would be, it would entice you with the flashing fluorescent lights and, and the sounds coming out of it. Uh, but it would look dark and mysterious from the outside. Uh, when you go in, uh, these are set up in ways that are really crammed together a lot of times. Like the games would be very close to each other and there would be, if there are other people in there, they would all be kind of watching each other play. Um, these became social spaces, but also kind of socially competitive places because most of these arcade games also have high scores. And so you want to try to put your, your name on the high score table for a game and um, you kind of get some uh, credibility that way among your peers by, by attempting to claim that, that score. <laughs> but also seen by some to have a dark side? Yes, they were certainly criticized. And I think there are two avenues to the criticism, uh, at least in the 70s and 80s, and uh, it persists. Uh, I mean, parents in some cases were concerned about the, the content of the video games, but if you think back to what was going on in video games in the 1970s and the early 80s, the imagery is very abstract, and so we don't really get as much of a concern about depictions of violence that we get later on in the 1990s, like with Mortal Kombat. But there were people noting that, yeah, you have stick figures shooting other stick figures, and that does symbolize violence. So that, that was one of the critiques of, of video games. 
Um, the other thing, though, is that parents saw it as kind of a waste of money and something that was keeping their kids out later than they wanted them to be out. So a lot of local communities did things to make it harder for arcades to operate and, uh, and you know, having things like um, restricting the amount of time they could be open or the number of people that could be there at a time or uh, even imposing curfews for, for kids so they couldn't go to the arcade as much as they wanted to. Listen to this one. Do you recognize this? Yes. I believe that is Pac-Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was this also the heyday of Pac-Man? Yeah, so Pac-Man was enormous. And Pac-Man was great because it not only was a obviously a compelling and fun game experience, but it really transcended video games and, and made it into to popular culture. Uh, so this is a game that came out in 1980. And so it's really right at that golden age of... of video games and also became kind of an icon for the entire medium or genre, if you will, of video games. And so people knew Pac-Man, even if they didn't play video games. There was a, there was a cartoon show uh, where Pac-Man had a family. Uh, there, was, uh, <laughs> a, uh, there, there was a song, Pac-Man Fever. And so Pac-Man really became very much the symbol for the era. It came at a good time. It came at the right time to capitalize on and benefit from the popularity of video games at the time, but it also really expanded people's awareness of video games and, and made more people aware of video games than than otherwise might have been. It just seems like they're such fun places and they're designed to be mm -hmm. pure fun. What eventually led to their demise? I know there are still video game arcades, but nowhere near as many as there once were. That's right. I looked up some statistics on it and it seems that there were around 5,000 standalone arcade parlors, video game arcade parlors in 1980. And then that number doubled to 10,000 in 1982. And then the, uh, the Nintendo, uh, what we know in America as the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES, uh, which is the, the Famicom in Japan, really takes home game consoles to another level. And we call that the third generation in game history because of how much better the games were and how much more compelling they were. And they really could faithfully imitate the same kind of experience you could get at an arcade. And so people didn't need to go to an arcade to play a really good version of of Pac-Man or whatever those games were. And also you got more compelling, longer form narrative kind of games, uh, arcade games that you go, that we, we would go play at an arcade. Those are one or two minute long games for each coin usually, depending on how good you are. Uh, but you could sit at home and play Super Mario Brothers for uh, many, many hours if you chose to. And many people found that to be a, a better experience. And so they stopped going to the arcade. <laughs> Zach Whalen, thanks so much for talking with me with Good Reason. You're welcome. Zach Whalen is a digital studies professor at the University of Mary Washington. I got a pocket full of quarters and I'm headed to the arcade. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. In 2014, Anita Sarkeesian posted a video series on YouTube criticizing common sexist tropes in video games. Her video struck a nerve among a particular subgroup of white male gamers, and the furious backlash of harassment against Sarkeesian and other gaming women is known as the Gamergate Scandal. Bruce Williams is a media studies professor and interim chair of the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. He says we're still dealing with the political and social fallout from Gamergate today. Bruce, you've been playing video games for a long time. You used to love them. What was the first one you fell in love with? About how old were you? I was pro I was probably in my 30s, actually. Um, the game that I think changed the way I think about games was the first Call of Duty. I loved it because when I played it and then watched my two children play it, it seemed to me that it provided an engagement with historical material. This first game was set around D-Day, in the Second World War. And um, it seemed to me that this was a very new way to engage uh, folks in historical events in a way that was quite different than reading a book or watching a movie. What was it like to play it? What would you do in this game, Call of Duty? So it was in the jargon. It was a first-person shooter. And 
I can still remember killing my first German. And I remember my avatar walking over and I stood looking down at this other avatar and really thinking about how much closer this seemed to a um, an experience of being there than I had had in a lot of other media. And I've spent a lot of my time thinking and writing about how media addresses war. And this seemed very different and exciting to me. Right. It was exciting. It was fun. What started to turn you off from video games? The stuff that bothers me is the move to online gaming That is uh, the idea that almost any game that big studios are involved in, central to it is what's called online multiplayer gaming, which is uh, basically allowing strangers or friends to sign on and fight battles, uh, usually with strangers, And most games now, that's what they emphasize. And I don't do well with that um, because that introduces the kind of anonymous community without responsibility or consequences that can make online gaming very uh, uncomfortable for me as an old guy, but also women and anyone who is basically not a white male teenager. For those of us who don't game and don't spend a lot of time in free-for-all online communities, what sorts of things are being said that are so hard to bear? I think it depends very much on the game and the community. Just like if you went online, there are places you can go. There are Facebook groups that are wonderful and supportive and do a lot of good stuff. But there are also places um, where people develop a persona, an identity on these sites. And what happens in gaming is they become incredibly hostile to any newcomers, to anyone that comes online and, you know, doesn't play very well at the beginning. And the kind of things that can be said are the kinds of things that, in my mind, um, you know, adolescent males primarily say when they want to get a rise out of people. So there are sexist insults, racist insults, homophobic insults. Some communities are very unwelcoming to anyone who isn't already a part of that community. But I guess a lot of people are sort of addicted to even that hostile environment, right? They're getting a rush out of participating in that. Absolutely. And I think that's where this connects to something that is going on with gaming, but in the broader media ecology that we live in. And that is that in this social media world, especially when you are engaged in a kind of focused community like gamers, you're playing a game, there is an assumption now that I will be able to air my opinions, I will be able to argue, fight, and insult other people online, and that my opinions matter. They will be recognized and acknowledged, and um, I can say whatever I want, And what I'm aiming for is attracting followers and more and more eyeballs on my comments. And what makes this so toxic, I think one of the central elements, is anonymity. There are no consequences to this. This this was all typified by an incident in the online gaming world that happened in 2014, 2015 called Gamergate. Help me understand Gamergate. What was it at its essence? The example that I know the most about, because I followed it most closely, is of Anna Sarkeesian, who became a prominent target when she did a Kickstarter campaign to do a series of videos on um, basically gendered tropes in video games. 
and she criticized games, along with a lot of other popular culture, for its continued use of very tired, sexist tropes. And what happened is her Kickstarter campaign led to a sort of organized attack on Anna Sarkeesian. And to give you an example of what this was like, someone actually made a very simple online game which starts with a picture of Anna Sarkeesian. And when you hit the space bar, that image gets punched in the face. And as you keep hitting the space bar, it punches again and again until at the end, she is just bloodied and bruised and awful looking. And she was doxxed, that is her address was published online. And her family and her had to leave their home and 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 live somewhere else until this blew over. You know, you saw Gamergate as an expert and as a former player in 2014. You teach a course on the gaming industry and its impact on democracy and the political system. Did you see from Gamergate on this growing community and its growing emergence between real life and online life? When Gamergate came up, one of the things that I immediately thought about is the idea that this was all happening online. But I'm not sure that the thing that drove this alt-right strategy online, I don't think that was... uh, caused or peculiar to gaming as a community any more than, you know, if uh, Facebook pages or even YouTube, you know, they become places for political expression and sometimes they can become ugly. And I think the issue is less gaming than it is what social media has done to a lot of different forms of expression. You have commented on some people who've linked Gamergate and that online nasty culture to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. How do they get from the online cruelty of young men playing real-time online war games to the attack on the Capitol? A couple of things. So I've been um, a little defensive in defending gaming. But on the other hand, there is some evidence that certain games are used as a very rich online recruiting ground for extremist groups. There are mods of games. That is, uh, hobbyists, they write new code, and so they take a game engine and they change around the avatars and the dialogue and things like that. And you take that in the context of a um, an already violent shooter like Doom, which is about monsters, That game was modified by the American military to to be used as a trainer for young Marines 20 years ago. And it has been modded uh, to uh, have Nazis chasing Jews or just celebrating the idea of being armed and angry and um, having an enemy. Have you and your students explored any recent games that maybe have a more positive message or tackle more productive issues? Yes. There are independent games. That is, they're produced by not gigantic studios, but smaller operations that have produced incredibly uh, positive and wonderful uses of games. There is a game called That Demon Cancer that is aimed at parents who have children with cancer. And it was designed by parents who lost their child to cancer. Um, There are lots of games that do wonderful things. If you think about climate change, there have been 
games over the last 15 or 20 years that have tried to present the issues and problems of climate change. And a lot of them have won awards and they're, they're kind of interesting. They don't find a mass audience. And that's because they don't make money. Well, Bruce Williams, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Bruce Williams is a media studies professor and interim chair of the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. In 2019, a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, sent shockwaves throughout the country. Donald Trump was president at the time, and like many politicians and pundits before him, he partly blamed the tragedy on violent video games. We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. Jimmy Ivory is a professor of communication and the director of the Gamer Lab at Virginia Tech. He studies the impact of video games on human behavior and says he hasn't found any evidence linking gaming and violence. Jimmy, every time there is a mass shooting, some people really worry about violent video games. Some of the shooters turn out to have played gruesome, realistic video games for hours on end. It's not that many people who play violent video games become shooters, but what do you think it means? Do the games have no influence on the few who do become shooters? One reason I think we falsely associate violent video games with violent crime is this phenomenon we call the base rate phenomenon, where uh, most violent crimes are committed by young men, or a higher percentage of violent crimes, excuse me, are committed by young men. And when it comes to things like mass crimes, mass shootings, they're almost exclusively committed by men and, and disproportionately committed by young men. And another thing that a lot of young men do is play video games. A lot of people in general play video games. So when we say, okay, we've got some young men committing shootings, young men play a lot of violent video games, and so did this one, at some point that's about as valuable as saying, well, the perpetrator wore sneakers, and, uh, you know, in fact, all mass shooters wear sneakers, so we've got to keep an eye on sneakers. And I think that's often the case with video games. We'll find that a lot of perpetrators of mass shootings will play violent video games, but not necessarily more so than their peers. Are there studies on the effect of the violent video games on people who are more emotionally unstable? For the most part, studies have not been able to identify even a specific subgroup of the population who is likely to become a violent criminal from playing violent games. I think one important thing when we talk about violent crime is it happens a lot less than we think. It happens a lot more than it should. <laughs> but when they survey people in the United States and ask them how much violent crime happens, they tend to overestimate it. Um, violent crime, especially uh, high-profile violent crime like murder, has been basically in decline since the 70s, and it's been in decline among young people since at least the 90s. So I think when we look at the broad population, we know that there, it's very unlikely there's a high, strong correlation between things like violent media and violent crime because violent crime's been on the downswing at the exact same time that violent media use has been on the upswing. I know so little about actual gaming habits and shooters, but... I'll never forget news coverage at the horrific shooting incident at the school in Newtown and how the news media had said that the young man had been doing a lot of gaming. I remember early on when we were all shocked by one of the earliest instances of this, the Columbine shooting, same thing there, and some others in between. I think there was a young man who killed 21 people in El Paso a couple of years ago, and among many things he talked about in his manifesto, he was devoted to the Call of Duty games. And he said, don't attack heavily guarded areas to fulfill your super soldier fantasy. So those are those kinds of things that I think we civilians do when we're thinking, okay, that constitutes a trend. I think when we look at some of these very high profile mass shootings, and they're all you know, unspeakably tragic, of course, and they all have kind of these extremely unique and, and sad stories about them. I think it's easy for us to see a pattern 
that often isn't quite there when it comes right. to some of these shootings because I think that's the case anytime we're looking at anecdotal evidence. We'll notice the things that fit our worldview and not the things that don't. Almost as soon as the news starts to cover a violent crime, there's some pundit out there saying, oh, I bet they played shooting games and things like that. And again, that's often wrong. And I think about one example that really changed my research career from 2002 around the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. There was a a serial criminal up there. It ended up being two people, but there was a a crime phenomenon up there called the, I believe they called the D.C. sniper. Someone was with a high power rifle was shooting people at fuel stations and places like this and kind of a little bit of a reign of terror up there. People are nervous getting fuel and everything else. And there was a lot of talk among the pundits. This will be a violent video game player who's playing these military-style shooting games, practicing long-range sniping and things, and now they're doing it. When they caught the perpetrators, it was, it was two people, and they were two, they were two black men. And the conversation about violent video games dropped off to nothing almost immediately, even though one of these perpetrators was a violent video game player. And in the news coverage, we've seen systematically that we are more likely to hear conversations about violent video games when the perpetrator of a violent crime is a white male or a white person. And what does that mean to you? What does that mean we're doing other than, hey, we think of young white men as playing video games more than we think of young African-American men as playing video games? Yes. Yeah, so I think I think the conversation about video games is more than just what is the science about video games, but I think why are we talking about video games? I think when it comes to the stereotypes— and kind of subtle systemic racism we see in the United States. A lot of people imagine a certain kind of person when they imagine a criminal, and that if, and they imagine that person in terms of where they're from, what they look like, and everything else. And it may be that when it comes to violent crime, when there's a white perpetrator, people try harder to come up with an excuse for them or a reason for them. And when it's a black perpetrator, we're more likely to see subtle stereotypes come into play and people might not need a reason. That's so interesting. What have you learned and been interested in since you've been looking into the possible correlation between video games and violent behavior or zero correlation, right? So I think this is often the case when it comes to science. The more something makes sense intuitively, the more it gets complicated when you look at the actual science. I think it makes a lot of intuitive sense to see a young person playing violent video games, especially extremely graphic, gory, senseless, violent video games, you know, simulating massive war battles, simulating, you know, antisocial criminal behavior and say, this must be doing something bad to this person. That's what got me interested in the topic, was being concerned about the possible harm done by video games. So what I've spent a lot of my career doing is is not finding answers to that question. Um, we, we would look at things. For quite a while, we've known that when it comes to really high-profile mass crimes, there is not a very strong predictive value to things like media use. And much bigger fish than me are working on this. Groups like the Secret Service have done studies on trying to profile mass shooters, and they've mostly found that they are, again, mostly young men, mostly young men who are feel hard done, hard done by or aggrieved by society or someone, and often at least slightly more likely to have specific types of untreated mental health concerns. And beyond that, there's not a lot of strong predictors. And I think that frustrates it frustrates law enforcement. I think it frustrates society that we don't have more answers of who are these people, who's the next one going to be. Where there is more debate is we've used to have a lot of people who would argue that, well, using these violent media, including violent video games, probably affects more abstract things. Like maybe when someone provokes you, it is easier to come up with an aggressive outcome because your mind has been immersed in this aggressive and violent context. Or maybe when you think about other people, you're more likely to imagine them and the world as hostile because you've been consuming a lot of violent content. And that has become more and more controversial where some studies find associations between violent media, violent video games, and these kind of more abstract aggressive outcomes, like what words are easier to think of, and some studies do not. What are you doing now in the Gamer Lab that's fascinating you? Well, for a while, I haven't been doing much in there <laughs> because I've been at home a lot. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what we've been interested in lately are other problems. I think one concern I have about video games is the way that they represent people. Are we, are we more likely to have video game characters who are white, who are male? 
Are we more likely to have important decisions being made by white and male video game characters? And the answer from our systematic research and that of others is yes. I also think that for a lot of people, fortunately, in their household, they have someone saying, don't hit people, don't kill people. <laughs> it's not a good idea. It's not good for you. It's not good for them, etc." What we may not have is as many people in the same households hearing things about how men should treat women, who the important people are in society, who, who are the people who have you know important jobs and roles in society. And I do worry a little about what video games teach there, not necessarily on purpose, but just inadvertently through their representation. I think if we don't think consciously about representation, it can get, it can get sort of sloppy in terms of the ways that it represents humans and what they should be like. Another concern I have about video games, if we do want to talk about things like people being aggressive with each other, I'm not actually as concerned anymore about things like whether they're pretending to be a soldier or pretending to be a criminal. I'm more concerned about the way they treat each other in video games. <laughs> We've done a few studies that are sort of observational that with the increasing proliferation of online video game play, uh, people are much more likely to hear things like racial slurs, homophobic slurs, general aggressive profanity in online game settings than they probably are in public, unless they're in a, in a pretty coarse environment. So that's been my kind of journey through this research landscape is going from does violent content affect people to I think actually it's the people that affect people. Jimmy Ivory is a professor of communication and director of the Gamer Lab at Virginia Tech. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.